It's the final day of summer, which is sad in some ways and great in some ways because it's fall and the Jonathan Apple's out. We do like sour apples on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Layla Tassi, Laura Johnston, and Lisa Garvin. Are you sad today or are you excited that fall is here and fall is beautiful around these parts? Come on, cold front. (laughs) Well, I, I, yeah, I'm tired of sweating, honestly, but right. I did swim yesterday in the lake and I think it's the latest I've ever done an open water swim in Lake Erie. Oh, okay. I can't believe you do that, Laura. I can't either. <laughs> you need the, you need to eat those apples, man, to keep. The, I was going to say, you might away. like sour apples. I'm a big fan of the honey crisp, but okay. That's, that's a little bit of a mixture of sweet and sour. Actually, I'm going to be making cider this weekend. I went over to Patterson's and I got four bushels of apples. Patterson's is like heaven on earth. It's just a great place that this time of the year, you just want to be there. So great times. Let's move on. Where does Ohio stand nationally when it comes to COVID infections in children? Lisa Garvin, we knew it was getting bad in Ohio, but it's worse. It's worse than we thought. And there's predictions of pretty dire situations within a couple of weeks. We are just not going in the right direction with this, you know, and and we did have that one little spot of good news that Pfizer vaccines are now okayed for children 5 to 11. Of course, that's not going to help until later. But at this point, Ohio is number five among the most populous states in the number of children hospitalized with COVID. We have had 466 kids hospitalized since the 1st of July here in this area, 170 just since the 1st of September, and then nine children have died. Uh, Dr. Amy Edwards, who's an infectious diseases expert with UH Rainbow Babies and Children, she's been a a very strong-voiced advocate throughout the COVID uh, pandemic. She said that the increase has been definite and very fast within the last two weeks, and she expects it to get worse between the end of November and middle of October. And I worry as things get colder and people go back inside, it's just going to get worse from there. ICUs are overwhelmed uh, with unvaccinated kids and their parents who are also unvaccinated. And she's, Dr. Edwards is pleading with people to be civic minded is how she put it and get vaccinated. And it is, it's a civic duty. And I would say it's a patriotic duty, but too many people are just not doing it. Well, and we're still a a bit away from the kids getting the vaccine because now that Pfizer has said it worked for kids, the FDA has to approve it. So this prediction that it's going to get bad over the next weeks, I mean, that vaccines aren't going to stop that for the uh, for the kids. Uh, It is kind of striking to hear children's hospital officials saying that we're going to be at complete capacity because of the number of sick kids. Uh, you know, people, the people are that are anti-mask and anti-vaccine say, you know, kids are the least vulnerable, et cetera, et cetera. But they're really sick. I mean, if you're hospitalized, it means you're really sick. And the numbers of that are growing. It was and just it, it was just kind of a slap in the face to see that of the 10 most populous states, we're number five. Number five. Of, uh, and, where kids and, are. And, and the thing that that really that really raises my hackles is that. We are burdening our healthcare providers beyond, I don't even know how they've kept going this long. And if your child gets sick or gets in a car accident, you know, something non-COVID related and they need to get into the ER or the ICU, they may not be able to. We've read stories, you know, from other places where kids and adults have been sitting outside of ERs waiting to be admitted because there's no beds for them because they're filled with COVID patients. 
very the other problem is it's expensive in the in the beginning of covid the insurance companies waived copays but now that's back and so people who have been hospitalized are coming home to some pretty big bills to pay mm -hmm. because they're they have the kind of insurance where it's high deductible so can i add it this is laura johnston we just talked about how this is the end of summer and you know kids are the, the the good weather is going to end and the kids are going to be inside even more and we got our first covid notification that my daughter's class had someone with COVID in it. And I, I just said, you know, wear your mask, try to keep your distance. She's like, I said, try to keep six feet. She's like, mom, our desks are three feet apart from each other. And you're just oh like, gosh. oh, mm -hmm. please just fingers crossed till we get a vaccine. Yeah, I it, it, I think that, well, we saw as soon as kids went back to school, this became a rocket. The numbers went up, the graphs went up and it's transmitting in schools. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What was the reaction Monday when Matt Dolan formally announced his entry into the U.S. Senate race to replace the retiring Rob Portman? Or Johnston, we talked about this yesterday because Andrew Tobias broke it, but he actually did come out and make it official yesterday with an announcement. What are people saying? Well, it probably depends on who you ask, but I was surprised by the amount of pessimism. The people who think he doesn't really stand a chance in the primary because it's going to draw the most conservative of voters. He's not taking the stance as an anti-Trump candidate. He doesn't agree with Anthony Gonzalez that Trump should have been impeached, but he think it, he does say that Biden won the election, that it was fair. And, and so he's just kind of standing apart from Trump. His platform is totally separate. And some people are saying, like Steve Stivers, a former Republican congressman, says Dolan has this opportunity to take a position differently from the rest of the field. We talked yesterday how the other candidates are incredibly Trump sycophants. And he said he's talked to people who are excited, but there are a lot of people that say there is no way that Dolan can win, not in a primary that's going to draw the most conservative people out. And then, you know, Trump went on Twitter and <laughs> and blamed him for the Indians name change and said, no way. Yeah, I uh, couldn't believe that, that Donald Trump was taking a position on this. I don't know. I do think if he is able to appeal to even 30 percent of the Republicans who vote, saying, look, we, we've got to separate ourselves from this nonsense. We've got to get back to what what Republicans were about before the whole party was derailed by by all of the, the Trump silliness. I don't know. You might you might. There are a lot of people that don't want the, the all of those that are begging for Trump's benediction. They don't want Josh Mandel. We're going to have to do a story about where Josh Mandel is getting support from, because everything I hear from Republicans is they can't stand him. They're petrified that he'll win the primary because they think that'll give the seat to a Democrat because he can't win more than half the vote across the state because people don't like him. He's um, a you know, very unlikable guy. He, what he says on social media is horrible. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Could could the good guy, the, the person that stands apart, not you're right, not the anti-Trump, just the independent thinker, the the true conservative say to people, look, show up, vote. Let's let's do this right. Let's have the kind of candidates that Ohio is known for, not people that just want to appease the former president whose popularity is actually waning. There, well, there actually, are a couple. Pro Go ahead. Lisa Garvin. Yeah, no, this is Lisa Garvin. I just want to point out something in Tobi to Andrew Tobias's story this morning that's a little bit concerning. Apparently, Dolan did not agree with uh, Anthony Gonzalez's vote to impeach Trump. So, I mean, right. It sounds like that if Dolan yeah. had and been Dolan in his place. A, go ahead. Has a couple other issues 
as well. He voted against the heartbeat bill, which was a sweeping abortion ban, you know, that very conservative voters wanted. And then he's some alienated some pro-gun activists in 2019. But he introduced the package of reforms from Governor Mike DeWine as a response to the fatal mass shooting in Dayton. And you know how well those have gone over with the Republicans. So, Mm. I mean, Dolan is putting himself as a very conservative. He, He points to the budget that he passes, the most conservative budget in the state history. But those other two issues are are passionate for people. Yeah, although again, I think what we're basing that on is the fringe Republicans that that scream and yell. Mm-hmm. I do think there are most people are somewhere in the middle, and I do think there are reasonable people that would love to have a reasonable candidate, mostly because they want to keep the seat Republican. And if one of the extremists become the candidate, a Democrat could win. You know, I wonder, yeah. Sherrod Brown is... won handily in, in his election runs. And if you end up with a more moderate Democrat and an extremist Republican, which was what all those guys are, then the Democrats could win, which is what Republicans are worried about. Matt Dolan is a Republican that very easily could win that election. That's a good point. And I wonder if this is a primary where you have crossover voters, if you have Democrats who decide to vote in a Republican party or primary because they're scared of the Republican or if they're just saying, hey, we want the Trumpiest person because we can beat that. I don't know. It's really interesting. I think that they want the Trumpiest person because they think they can beat it. But we'll have to see. We'll have to see how Matt Dolan works his campaign and whether he gets all the support that we think he'll get in Cleveland. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is Cleveland mayoral candidate Kevin Kelly abusing his position as city council president to buttress his campaign? Leila Tassi, how else to explain the extremely unusual move he forced through council Monday to set aside $20 million for broadband access without having any actual plan for spending it. This This, is one of the strangest things I've seen come through council. Same. I agree with you. Yesterday, Courtney Astolfi and I were combing through the city council finance agenda in advance of their meeting. And we we did a double take when we saw this (laughs) this item earmarking $20 million of the city's American Rescue Plan stimulus money for this ambiguous broadband expansion citywide. You know, everyone's talking about broadband access and using those stimulus funds to help bridge the digital divide. Cleveland is the worst city in America on this issue. But this really seemed out of left field. It was essentially setting aside the money without having the foggiest idea who would own the project, how it would get done or how far the money would go. And that is not the way big expenditures work. Normally, city council would authorize the administration to first put out a request for proposals. They would get a feeling for the vendors, the scope of the project, the cost. They do a bunch of research before they would ever agree to encumber that large sum of money. But here, this legislation really seems to be putting the cart before the horse. And why? Well, you know, I don't know. Look no further than who's sponsoring it. Council President Kevin Kelly, who's running for mayor and just happened to have advanced through the primary last week, Uh, He and Justin Bibb will face off in November. Suddenly it becomes abundantly clear what this is. It's a political stunt. (laughs) So we did predict on this podcast two months ago that Kelly might try to use that American Rescue Plan money as a campaign tool. I didn't think it would be this naked in in, in what it was. I mean, it's just this is strange. So. So it's not just us questioning it. Carrie McCormick at the table questioned right. it. And then yeah. 
he did, he voted against it, correct? He That's said, right. I'm not going for this. Kerry because McCormick, go ahead. What, what did he say? What did he say about how did he compare this to the lead paint initiative? Yeah, well, did? he was first he was like, you know, am I hearing this right? We're not actually spending this money. We're just using this money to make a legislative statement that council supports an eventual broadband expansion. And he, he did. He contrasted the whole thing with how council went about approving the funding for lead abatement with a couple years worth of testimony and research backing it up. And McCormick was really incredulous that council would approve this approach to carving out money for some nebulous future purpose. So in the end, he and, and Councilman Brian Casey ended up voting no. And, and he even said, us, have, yeah, he even said, have I missed two years of research? That's right, which I thought was such a perfect, his delivery was perfect too. It's just like the right touch of snark. And, uh, you know. Well, so, but the other thing is, and, and we've done multiple stories on this. We've talked about it a good bit. The council members have been frustrated for months at the lack of of spending of this money, the exactly. lack of planning, the lack of discussions. They've had several kind of pointless meetings where where they were supposed to talk about how to do it, but but there was nothing specific even a week ago. Right. So Kevin Kelly yeah. at a, a week ago could have said, hey, guys, I'm going to have something on the agenda next week to put 20 million into broadband. But he didn't probably because they would have said, what are you talking about? Well, how, how, what is that about? What's even stranger about the timing of this was that this was introduced on a first reading on August 18th. And the hearing you're talking about happened like five days after that. So these council members appeared to not even know that this thing had been introduced. And I watched the video of the August 18th council hearing where it was read into the record. And you know, Chris, how that goes. Like they read <laughs> 5,000 <laughs> pieces of legislation. No, you can't it's like Charlie Brown's teacher talking, right? It's like... And I'm looking at the faces of the council members. No one even flinches. They're kind of looking through their papers, doing whatever they do, zoning off or whatever. I don't know. But nobody even reacted to it. A week later, they're all like, when are we going to get some concrete plans about how we're going to spend this money? You know, they're all just at the table screaming about, you know, we don't have any idea how we're going to spend it. And and Kevin Kelly never mentioned, hey, guys, remember that broadband plan I proposed a week ago? Well, we're going to that's going to come up for our vote next week. I mean, never did that okay. ever come across. Okay. And Sharon Dumas was at the table and she didn't mention it. I mean, I just I can't believe this. All that's right. you know, that's so, the other really disturbing thing to me is is, you know, Frank Jackson has endorsed Kevin Kelly. But, you know, and his finance director, Sharon Dumas, as chief of staff, was at the committee table telling council how this money had to be set aside immediately for broadband. She used the word immediately. But in the same breath, she says that once the legislation passes, it'll be in the hands of the next mayor to execute the project, and it won't get past the contemplation phase while Jackson is mayor. So, huh? Then why okay, so it let immediately? Me, <laughs> so let me ask you this, because Kevin Kelly's a smart guy. His campaign folks are smart people. Um, and, and this ended up is an embarrassment. It's a front page story in the Plain Dealer. It's big on our website. And it's not a positive for Ken Kelly. It appears very much, and people are accusing him of playing politics with his job, that this is purely a political stunt so he can say, I'm delivering 20 million for broadband. The people that look good in the story are his opponent, Justin Bibb, who was attacking it as politics, and Kerry McCormick. So I, I don't get it. There, th this, this could only end this way. By doing it the way they did it, this clumsy ramming, ramming of it through, unusual, you know, not following any of the traditions and practices of council, it, it could only end up being called a political stunt. 
So why do it? I mean, they're smarter than that. This was inevitable to be the discussion today. So why do it? You're asking the wrong person. (laughs) (laughs) You you need to ask his campaign advisors, because I don't know from where I stand this is Kevin Kelly using the stimulus money to create the, the illusion that he's the hero solving Cleveland's digital divide when really it's just artificially setting aside $20 million without a plan. So, but he didn't. In the end, he's not the hero that's setting apart $20 million. He's the council well, president yeah, who was falsely. Because we yeah, spotted I, it. Yeah, I, but it was, I, I don't know. I, I, I can't come up with an explanation. Usually I can come up with some implausible explanation. I can't come up with one. But I, I'm surprised because they're, these are smart people we're talking about. And if this is what it appears to be, it was really dumb. Mm-hmm. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How did Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish get a boost on his seven-year effort to build microgrid zones where electric power and broadband would never have outages? Lisa Garvin, this is an economic development tool he's been talking about for years. If you can set up areas where companies that that rely on 100% all the time, power and broadband, they'll come to Cleveland. You'll get people to come to Cleveland, especially with all the bad weather we've been talking about on the coast where we have none. So what happened? What's, What's moving this along after so much stagnancy on it? Well, apparently County Council has voted to create the Division of Public Utilities, which would be a whole new department that's being created to manage and operate these new grid districts that they'll be setting up as part of their microgrid project. Um, This is a first in Ohio, um, although... uh, Cleveland, or rather Cuyahoga County, is one of only two counties in Ohio that has a charter government, former government, so that allows them to perform certain government functions like providing utilities and so on and so forth. But a couple of council members voted no. They feel like it's not the time to create a new department, a new layer of bureaucracy. Um, Those two council members who voted no were Nan Baker and Jack Schron. I personally think the microgrid is a great idea. I don't know if a new layer of bureaucracy is needed, but their next step will be to hire a consultant who will find candidates to, you know, fill these positions in this new division. So I don't know, bureaucracy, you know, but microgrids are a good thing. They're talking about some interesting locations for them. Um, Possible locations for these grid systems would be the Hopkins NASA area, uh, the Cleveland Foundation headquarters in Midtown, uh, American Greetings old uh, biz, uh, headquarters in Brooklyn and uh, the site of the Sherwin-Williams Brexville R&D building that's going to be under construction. So, I mean, they're picking the right places. I just don't know whether the bureaucracy is ne- necessary, is it? No, well, we should point out Lee Weingart, a Republican who's announced he's running against or running for county executive next year. We don't know if Budish is going to run for reelection is attack this saying you can't do your basic job as we've detailed repeatedly all the failures of the of the administration what are you doing creating a new department we we really don't have have the ability when he originally proposed this i thought it was a great idea but he was proposing to do it in cleveland where cpp and if he collaborated with cleveland the city-owned utility would be the redundancy. We have redundant power lines in Cleveland. First Energy has power lines and CPP has power lines. If you could do something with those redundant power lines so that one goes down, the other one lasts. But but I guess the negotiations with the city didn't pan out the way he originally envisioned, and that's why we're looking elsewhere. 
the, the, the question I have is, uh, you know, he's un, he's unlikely to still be county executive after next December. And will the person that follows him have any desire to continue this effort? I mean, he's had seven years to move this along and he's barely moved it along. And now the big thing is let's create another county department. So we'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson's grandson was killed shortly after a big development in a homicide case he was tied to. Leila Tassi, what's the case and what was the recent development? His grandson was killed Sunday night. Yes, Frank Q. Jackson, Mayor's 24-year-old grandson, he was shot to death uh, just around 9 o'clock Sunday night in the Garden Valley housing projects on the east side. Cleveland police have not released a motive for his death. No arrests have been made in that case. But Adam Faris reported that the shooting happened just three days after investigators made their first significant break in a 2019 fatal shooting case that was linked to a car that Frank Q. Jackson once owned. And so, you know, if you kind of jog your memory, in 2019, that car, which turned out to be registered to the mayor's grandson, it was seen speeding away from the scene after Antonio Parra was shot and killed outside a barbershop in Cleveland Stockyards neighborhood on the west side. Frank Q. Jackson's attorneys had told investigators that he sold that car sometime before that shooting, and police found it torched behind an abandoned church near East 93rd Street. So all of that went unsolved until just a few days ago. Court records say investigators found a fisherman-style bucket hat near the torched car, and that hat was sent to the Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner's Office for testing. It turned up the DNA of a tw- of 29-year-old James Greathouse of Cleveland, who has a history of convictions for violent crimes. And Greathouse was charged with arson on Thursday. That was just three days before Frank Q was shot to death. So no one, including Greathouse, has been charged in connection with, with uh, Frank Q. Jackson's death. But you know, Great House has a rap sheet that includes shootings and other violent crimes. So, you know, is it a coincidence that police began connecting the dots uh, on the Antonia Paro case and, and the, the car fire case just days before Frankie Jackson gets shot and killed? I don't know. Time will tell. We'll see what the other unfolds the here. other weirdness that about this is an hour or two before Frankie Jackson was killed. There was another pretty bad shooting at the Lonnie Burton Center. Oh. Um, and you just wonder, is there, you know, we know how these things go there, there, there's retribution shootings or, or anger that results from one shooting to another. That's what violence interrupters try to prevent. Uh, we'll have to see what happens. It was this Frank Hugh Jackson has had plenty of trouble. We've written about him plenty of times, uh, with his court battles. Um, but, but it's gotta be, this has gotta be a crushing blow for the mayor and his family. Is there another mayor in America who has had so many personal ties to what's happening in American cities. I mean, he he's lost family members. He's lost friends. Are there other mayors that have, have had that happen? I've not heard of them. I don't know. I was thinking about that yesterday when you brought that up during our manager's meeting. And, and um, I'm curious to know the answer, too. I, I would bet that there are. I bet if we look, we will we will find other other mayors who've who've dealt with this anguish and are seeing the you know, the heartache of, of this violence epidemic up close in their personal lives. Well, nobody can accuse him of being in, a, in an ivory tower. He's definitely in the center of it all. You're listening mm-hmm. to This Week in the CLE. 
<clears throat> what is the status of the Cleveland Clinic's expansion into London, England, and will its brand play there? Lord Johnson, it seems like this has taken a long time to, to get going, but it's about to get going. Yeah, the outpatient center is already ready, and the main hospital, which will be located in a um, historic building in central London, is scheduled to open in early 2022 with 184 beds. This is the clinic's third international location, and since real estate space is scarce in London, they're they're located in a 123-year-old uh, building, well, sorry, 123 lease on this historic building in Grosvenor Place. It's a six-story, 198,000-square-foot building in central London. So that's going to be very different than what you think of the Cleveland Clinic campus here. They actually just broke ground in a mentor hospital yesterday, too. So always expanding. And uh, the six-floor, 28,000-square-foot outpatient center has 17 consultation rooms. That's open. Uh, outpatient appointment diagnostics, general practice appointments. I don't know how it's going to go over in London. I think this is really interesting. It's a very different model of healthcare over there. Well, it, that, but it also, look, the, the Cleveland Clinic brand has become a national brand in a big way over the last quarter century in America. I, I just, you're dealing with a completely different situation. I mean, I, how many people in London, England know where Cleveland is to begin with? And I just wonder... <laughs> about how that works. I mean, it, it's, it's great for the Cleveland Clinic brand to be getting international notice. I, I just don't know how it will play. Or, or are they known internationally that they're a great heart hospital? We know people come from all around the world, rich people, to, to get their heart problems treated here. So do people in, in England know that already and be glad that the clinic has an outpost in their geography? I don't know. I was very aware of their Abu Dhabi location as well as in Florida. I had no idea they had a site in Toronto. And and you're that, Canadian. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I don't know how that works. Obviously, it probably does not work with the Canadian healthcare system. They're probably completely standalone. But uh, yeah, so I, I didn't realize that. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Let's do a fun one. What is it about Cleveland City Councilman Mike Polensic that makes him so popular with the voters that they have overwhelmingly voted to return him to the seat every election since 1977? Leila Tassi, he won so big in the primary, with, <laughs> 78% of the vote. Yeah. I, I, I ju it just it stood out. And we said, let's go back and talk to him. We profiled this guy over and over again over the decades. He's been around forever. But what, <laughs> what, did, we, what, was, what did we find as Bob Higgs went out and talked to people about I know, Mike we were you know, he's been in office for 43 years and the closest anyone has ever come to beating him was losing by 22 percent in 2001. I so, covered that. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> it was a bar owner down in Collinwood that really fought him hard. <laughs> so it just seems like, you know, when the rest of council has turned over again and again, when we've gone through how many administrations and changes to City Hall culture, and we're about to do it again. What's the magic behind this guy's staying power? So, yeah, Bob Higgs set out to write the story, and he did a great job capturing the charm of Mike Palencic. Really, you know, Palencic's constituents say it all boils down to public service, accessibility. He returns every phone call and email, and he's willing to go to the mats for the people of his ward. And that unfading popularity among voters means he doesn't really have to kiss up to the administration because he's not really beholden to anybody but his constituents. So he's this vocal, fearless fighter. And perhaps what he fights for most is maintaining the quality of life in his ward. And he's so proud of the fact that he has successfully 
killed 147 liquor licenses from bars that were considered nuisances. And, you know, one of my um, favorite stories about him was back in 2007 when he, and I remember when this happened, I don't know if I covered it, but he sent a letter to an 18 year old um, uh, Arsenio Winston, a young guy who was selling drugs on the street and Palencic um, uh, sent him this letter and he called him out as a crack dealing piece of trash in, in a very formal letter on letterhead. And it said, there are only two places you will end up at the rate you are going. That is prison or the nearest funeral home. I don't care which one you get to first, as long as your dumb, stupid blank is out of my neighborhood. <laughs> and <laughs> if, you know what? That guy ended up in prison. I think he's there today. So yeah, that, um... <laughs> was the, that was the cool part of that as we checked. And he, Mike Plankster was right. Was I also love the anecdote in the story. <laughs> About the woman who couldn't get her tree trimmed because his quote was perfect. Tell his me quote about was that perfect, one. he said. So this woman, he was meeting with a resident, you know, and she was telling him that she had tried for 11 years to get the city to trim a tree on her tree lawn. And he was telling the story to, to Bob Higgs. And he said, 11 years to get a tree trimmed. That's absurd. You could have raised a family of beavers to take care of that tree in that time. <laughs> I mean, that, that that's the so beauty perfect. of Mike Palencic. He is <laughs> extremely quotable. We actually have to catch ourselves at times because he's so quotable that that it becomes a crutch to go to him. And we've had points at which we said, come on, we got to go talk to somebody else. It's not fair <laughs> to always true. go back to Mike Palencic. machine. <laughs> but but I, what's amazing is, is that that as the city has changed in 44 years and as the population has changed, his neighborhood hasn't changed as much as the rest of the city, but his board boundaries have changed. There's far fewer council true. people now than when he started. And and they overwhelming. I mean, to, to be in a three way race and almost get 80 percent of the vote. It's like what, what's you know, I thought that this might be one where where some young upstart could challenge him because he's been around forever. But the people over there love him. That's right. I think it really does boil down to this guy returns your phone calls. I mean, he, he doesn't. Uh, I think it's it's hard to get a hold of, of certain council people. Mike Palencic, uh, he has a system. He must, <laughs> he figures out a way to, 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 you know, maintain that accessibility, always be responsive. And uh, that's what it boils down to in the wards is just, you know, you want your quality of life issues to be addressed. You want someone to respond to you. And he's been doing it for 43 years. All right. It's and a good story by Bob Higgs. Check it out on cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That'll do it. The next time we're together, it'll be the first day of autumn. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. 